When Hedwig and the Angry Inch first premiered off-Broadway in 1998, there was nothing that had ever been like it before. And I would argue that there's been very, very little like it since. If you haven't seen it, Hedwig is a cult classic musical and also now film about a rock and roll singer from Germany who, as she describes it, has a botched sex change and that leaves her with the angry inch from the title. Now, one of the many things that fascinates me about Hedwig that I wanted to talk to its creator and star John Cameron Mitchell about is the show's ability to continue to capture our attention and fascination. I think that there are very few artists that create something like this that people still want to talk about so in depth more than two decades later. And now currently, John Cameron Mitchell is starring as Joe Exotic in the new TV show called Joe vs. Carol. That series debuts on Peacock on March 3rd. And to celebrate the new show, we wanted to revisit this conversation with John, which we originally taped in person back in June of 2019. So I think you're gonna love it as much as I did. And without further ado, from The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A with John Cameron Mitchell. So Hedwig came out over 20 years ago. Are you surprised by the legacy and life that it's had since then? Yeah, I mean, we made it for Stephen Trask and I made it for our friends. And, uh, you know, we were trying to push the form of a musical within the musical world, you know, off-Broadway. We knew we couldn't be on Broadway at the time because it was still pretty conservative. But, you know, when you make something you love, your friends tend to love it and then a few more do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really plan, you know, how many people will see my thing. I just do what I do and hope people will like it. And they, they have. It's been, been meaningful for people. What do you attribute that ongoing connection to? I don't know. I mean, I think the story of trauma and recreating, redefining yourself after that trauma in a certain way. I mean, in this case, the trauma wasn't really a, a like a trans choice of finding yourself and defining yourself because the character was raped and mutilated and kind of forced into a gender reassignment against their will which is not exactly a trans fairy tale. You know, it's really, it's more like someone having a forced medical procedure, on, you know, from a communist government. It's just, it's strange. It's almost like a circumcision, you know, against his, his will. But then the, the real transformation comes after that when the music comes in, the writing, the band, the wig, the makeup, the Hedwig persona, which is built after the trauma and everyone can relate to reinvention, to self-definition, to finding out who you are and letting go of society's rules about gender, about who you are, about defining yourself as a victim. The character is very bitter and at the end lets go of even the drag, which was a protective armor, and walks into the world naked saying, take me as I am. And I think that's such an important distinction that being trans is something you are or aren't, but it isn't something that can be forced on you. No, no one can make you trans. Right. I mean, I sp in a way, this character is the closest thing to that. So I don't think of it in any way as a trans statement. In fact, it's a survivor statement. Definitely talks about androgyny as a kind of wholeness. We all have 
male and female energies. Society defines them differently, but we ha all have those energies in us, all of us. And that's what Hedwig espouses, is throughout the cultural slings and arrows, the family shit, the even the shit that comes at you from the left saying you must do this and you must be that and you have to define yourself as such. If not, then you are impure and therefore to be canceled. You know, those, those are all stresses that we have to deal with. And defining yourself is very important when you're young because you're escaping your family and, and society. But then you let go of those labels. You know, we all have friends. We forget what their sexuality or gender is. They're just our friends. And that's ultimately where we want to go, where those things are truly forgotten and the personal is paramount. And is that trans narrative that is often placed onto Hedwig's character, is that something that we've that has happened fairly recently or has that always been the case? Since we developed it in 94, the character, there's been a lot of changes in society for the better. But since then, people who might identify as trans, as, as non-binary, as queer, as, as straight and queer, you know, have all let us know that the story was useful in their own journey of finding themselves. If you don't use the male or female energies within you, if you just let them lie or hide them, they become like an animal that dies in your wall. It smells up the whole house. You know, you have to use these things. Drag is an important tool for that. You know, it's not the only one. But for me, it was. Performance was. To others, that's not their thing. So performance and doing Hedwig for so long on stage in the movie, etc., is still revisiting her today. That has yeah. then affected your own experience of gender. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, even before playing Hedwig, I was very scared of drag because I was scared of my feminine side. And I was even by myself not attracted to feminine men. And after literally the first gig of Hedwig, it opened me up completely. I suddenly was much less afraid of things. There was... You know, I found feminine guys, masculine women, att attractive. Like suddenly the, it was, it's a very healthy thing, role playing. It's not always the most politically correct thing now because you're not allowed to tell anyone's stories but your own. And in fact, you know, autobiography may be the only safe form left with trigger warnings and consent waivers, of course. I know you're joking, but it often feels like that. It, it, it's annoying to me because we all know there's a difference between appropriation, which is plagiarism, and being influenced by something and taking that vernacular into a new place. You know, the Beatles covered the Isley Brothers and, and then opened up into their own voice. The beginning of your process is often imitation, and then you find your voice. The bad artist just imitates and, and, and plagiarizes, but we, we begin by imitating our heroes. And mine are people of, of different genders and different races and different nationalities. And I am the sum of all those people that taught me. And Hedvig is another tool for other people to use and imitate. And anyone can play Hedvig. You know, to me, it can't, shouldn't just be male or trans or, or, or female. Or, it should be all. It is a mask that you put on. It is drag. We all do drag, intentionally or not. And the intentional one is very useful. And queer means looking at the world through a gender, a, a, a gender prism, awareness of gender, an awareness of how it, gender and power relate. That is what queer is, which is why we have straight queer friends, which is why some of our gay friends are not queer at all. In fact, they're incredibly literal. <laughs> and trying to imitate their oppressor and they're not particularly queer you know they're just following 
what they've been told and eroticizing the person that beat them up when they were 12. On the way over here, I was thinking about how Hedwig is the ultimate outsider story too. And that, of course, queer people relate to that. But then also nowadays in certain parts of the country, being queer, these, these queer kids don't correlate that to being outsiders. I think that is such a massive change to the queer experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I think certain urban centers is definitely better. But you, if you're queer and you're you know, outside these very big cities and even inside them, you still know you're different. You know, it's better. It's true. And I don't really relate to a, a queer mainstream or I would call it a gay mainstream. Never did. You know, I don't like to be told what kind of music I'm supposed to like and what I'm supposed to wear. And, and I've always been on the outside of even the outsiders. But I very much a community builder and I I like art because it's made of temporary communities, you know, for that play or that movie and they end before they become morasses of infighting and, and, and intrigue. I think a temporary community is always the best. It's so funny you describe yourself that way, because when I first got acquainted with your work, you know, this person John Cameron Mitchell was this successful artist who was actually part of the mainstream even though they were making no, art that wasn't. But we like, were that was always, my view. No, we were always struggling. I never made much money. Hedvig couldn't be up for an Oscar. You know what I mean? At that time, it was too weird. Couldn't be on Broadway, which is so gay, but we were not allowed. But yes, you're right. I mean, queer has had leaps and bounds in terms of awareness and acceptance. There's still much work to be done. You know, I was on Grindr recently in Florida, and it was like Trump, supporting queers and I'm like oh sadly the price of acceptance is also mediocrity and more queer fascists sure we're not immune no when I said that I grew up and you know this name John Cameron Mitchell was already established because Hedwig was just another musical next to any other while for you Hedwig was breaking rules for me it was like resetting the rules you know I didn't realize that this was a rule-breaking musical I just thought it was, a it was just a musical that's great that's what we were trying to get to. But, you know, you can ask any young gay guy today and, you know, maybe 15% of them have heard of Hedvig. You know, they, they know, you know, Lady Gaga and Beyonce. And to them, those are their queer icons, even though they're not really right. gay. <laughs> well, it's the whole thing about Hedwig didn't fit in on Broadway. You yeah. never had those ambitions because yeah. it's not like the palatable gayness that... Even something like a rent hat, even though it like broke the rules. I mean, I think it is personally. I think it's a very traditional Broadway musical in terms of its form and what it's about. I think I meant in terms of the questions it poses regarding gender and like when you specify that this is not a trans story and you say that this was something that was forced upon her, mm. that sheds a whole new light on her entire structure and it adds a darkness yeah. to everything she does. I guess has. it is dark. But you know, so Broadway's not I mean, there's a lot of silly Broadway, but, you know, they don't necessarily shy away from dark. But in any case, things have changed. You know, unusual things can be on Broadway, can be on the podcast. You know, even now people are like, podcast, that's two people in a room talking, right? And I'm like, well, no, it just means audio, you know, and audio can be anything. So when people said Broadway musical, Hedvig, I don't get it. You know, it's like, it's just songs and story. That's a musical. Do with it as you will. So I'm always encouraging in every form in film, you know, with short bus using real sex, it is pushing 
pushing the envelope, not step, I don't, I'm not such the rebel that I walk away from it all. I still take the forms that exist and I want them to be entertaining, but I want them to be useful, you know, to people and pushing boundaries. So after the Hedwig movie, you quit acting. Was it an official I quit acting or did you just stop accepting roles? I think I just stopped accepting roles. I didn't say this is forever. I was just burnt out. I'd used up everything I wanted to do as a, as a performer and was much more into the writing and directing. That was the exciting part for me. I wondered if you thought that Hollywood didn't know what to do with you. Well, that's the case too. And I didn't know what to do with them. You know, so I just went on and did my stuff. I, I, I Actually, that's not true because after Hedwig, I got a ton of offers to direct Hollywood movies and theater and was offered to play Hamlet in a few places. And I, I just, I was offered to direct Rent on screen, Memoirs of a Geisha. You know, there was a lot of things and offered roles. Like when I was offered one of the X-Men and, you know, I just was burnt out. And I also didn't want to do, I had been trained well enough to know that just because money and, and fame are associated. I mean, in a way, the more the money, the more the trouble, meaning less creative control. They can bully you around. They pay you to make things hard. That's often the case in Hollywood. And it wasn't, they weren't any things that I felt extremely strongly about. The one role I considered in that 15 years that I didn't act was uh, prior in the revival of Angels in America, but I wasn't quite the match physically for what they needed. But that was the first one that I kind of went in for a meeting about. But it was Lena Dunham actually texting me to kind of got me back to acting in Girls, which I was I was nervous about, but she let me rewrite my lines, so that made me feel better. Yeah, you've picked yourself into, I mean, Girls, Shrill, The Good Fight, one of my favorite shows. Yeah. You t tend to play this gay character, and I wonder if you are only seen in Hollywood as a gay actor only. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know how people see, you know, people don't have a lot of imagination in Hollywood. I played, you know, straight, gay, whatever over the years. It's nice to play something a little closer to myself, though Milo Yiannopoulos is, is not myself. I mean, I, I'll play Andy Warhol in vinyl. You know, they're still very different characters just because they're, you know, Hollywood sees gay as a character, but it's actually, they wouldn't say that about heterosexual. That's a character... It's not defined by his heterosexuality. So I've had an opportunity to play a lot of different kinds of queer roles lately, which is fun. And so that feels good to be back acting. Yeah, yeah. But it's not anything that's that's vital to me. You know, it's more fun. What is vital to you then? Uh, well, Shrill, being in that show, at first was it's just a money job because I had to pay for my mom's health care. And, you know, that was bleeding me dry because our country doesn't take care of its own. But it turned out to be a show that I love with great people. So I'm very grateful to be part of it. I love its message. I love the money I get from it. You know, I, I love shooting in Portland. You've mentioned money a couple of times. Do you stress out about money still? Everybody stresses out about money, unless you're born to the, you know, to the manner born. And in our country where our priorities seem to be skewed in terms of uh, social programs, we all have to think about, you know, what our children or our parents are going to need, you know. And uh, I've been free enough with rent-controlled apartment to say no to money jobs that I know will make me unhappy. I've been very lucky in that way. I also live very cheaply. I keep my overhead low so I can do what I want. When you start buying things, you start have to, having to do jobs you don't like.
with Short Bus, which you directed, that movie has unsimulated sex scenes, for people who don't know. What yeah. was it about that that made you want to tackle that? Growing up Catholic, growing up in a, in a Puritan country where sex was, was inherently bad or so shameful that it had to all be private and was not allowed to be in art the way everything else in your life is in art. You know, when you're telling a story of a first relationship and the first time you have sex is a very important part of that story. So why cut to the end of it when you make a movie? Aesthetically, I didn't understand. It, it implied that there was something bad about it. As we know, sex is, is neutral. It, it can be associated with, with joy and comedy and boredom and, and trauma and, and negativity. As well. But it's like to skip to the end implies that it's not worthy of being considered an important part of your life or an important part of your story. I know why that's the case because of our, our historical panic about sex. We, you know, we're invented. America, as we know it, was invented by religious fanatics and crazy capitalists. It was a miracle that out of that came a lot of wonderful thinkers and, and humane people of ideas and, and empathy. Even if we fail in many ways, as Americans have, we also are an idea an innovative-based culture at best, where possibility, where history doesn't crush you, there's possibility of change. You know, people are redefining America as a place where you die white together, which I don't recognize. You know, I grew up very patriotic, but it was about the Statue of Liberty. You know, it wasn't about how many people did we, did we beat in that last war. It was like, this is the sanctuary, you know, for the freaks. Some of the freaks might, you want to avoid, but others were came here and made and made a life and and my mother was one of them so i you know the idea of an a group of immigrants whether it's in a you know the sex not bombs room in the short bus salon in the film or whether it's joining the headheads who are you know hedvig is very important to these are all groups of immigrants it's in our multi various you know diverse gene pool that that progress happens when you put up the walls and you know you in, that leads to interbreeding and and deformity and that's the danger with america right now that we actually all end up as moral hemophiliacs with growing up in such a conservative home i think you said you viewed sex in this like puritanical sense when did you start to realize that that's how you viewed it well, it was being gay. It was a great privilege to be to be gay. Otherwise, I'd probably be very boring and, and, and unhappy and unexamined. So being queer offers vistas. You know, part of being queer is like, oh, I, there's somewhere else to go. You're not instantly shackled by possible early pregnancy usually when you're queer. And that, has, you know, that's the burden that heterosexual people have to deal with is is the beautiful creation of, of, of a child. And if it's accidental, it can destroy many lives, you know, if it's not intentional or examined with, with love and it can curtail your life. So we are free as queer people and there are places to go to find ourselves that saved me. You know, rock and roll saved some people, being queer saved me. If you're being told that you're going to hell and you know that that doesn't work for you, you might go, hmm, maybe there's some other things I'm being told that aren't right either. So you examine everything you're taught. Sometimes negatively, oh my God, you know, fuck everything. And if your self-internalized homophobia 
wins out, you know, that means more substance abuse and unsafe sex and all those things that can bring us down and, and destroy us. But if you do look from the other point of view is I'm questioning the politics, I'm questioning health care, I'm questioning racism, all of those things that we that we're taught by our friends or even by society need to be questioned and, and vetted. That is an advantage. And empathy comes from being an outsider. So if empathy, you know, I, I've said that, you know, woke without empathy is death. You know, it's nothing. They have to be hand in hand. They can't be about just making rules. It has to be about caring. And if you believe in prison reform and rehabilitation, you can't cancel people. I think that's such a great point about growing up queer because we've made this base decision to say, I'm not going to be in a opposite sex relationship, which is the social norm. Yeah. And so then we look at every other social norm and say, oh, we don't have to opt into this. You don't have to play the games of a marriage. The woman does this, the man does that. We invented our own relationships. You know, the fear that we were going to redefine marriage from a conservative point of view was well-founded. And we are. And we're making it better. And I would argue that straight couples are like taking advantage of that and like they are with it. They're listening. You know, they're realizing that monogamy might not be right for every couple. They're realizing that gender roles are not always useful in raising children or living your life. And that comes from queer marriage as well as other sources. So to me, that fear was well-founded. I think a lot of people are discovering that it might actually have helped marriage, which was on its way out for straight people. With growing up in these values, one that you were taught, I assume, was about abortion, since your mom was an anti-abortion activist. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I guess I don't want to assume that you're now pro it. I am pro-choice. Pro-choice. I, You know, things like gender and queerness and gayness, to me, are very natural yeah. variations of life, and they're, they're easy. And I bring that up because I feel like, like being queer, where that, you know, cracks open how you see the world— Having a mom who's anti-abortion and an activist in that, I feel like once you realize that you don't agree with that, it's like, what else did this woman who raised me like instill in me that I don't agree with? Yeah. And then, you know, but not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, you know, to extend that metaphor. You know, I there were wonderful people who, who were friends of my mom and are friends of my mom that abortion being pro-life in their view is very important. And I I would say, you know, nobody wants abortion. No one wants common. No one wants a high rate of abortion. What we want is planned pregnancies and the option to terminate when things go wrong. But that requires sex education, birth control, other things that say the Catholic Church doesn't believe in because they think it somehow is going to make sexual activity explode in, in a way that they don't like. Abortion rates have gone down. So has rates of people having sex. Right. Young people are not having sex the way they used to because of the internet. I really believe because of the internet. I think that because they're staring at their phones, they don't have practice and meeting people. They no, don't or looking people in the eye. Because we know what to do with a shirtless torso on our phone screens, but we don't know what to do with it when we're like holding in our hands. Yes, and there's a head on it. And to me, it's a kind of erotophobia that comes out of technology. I also see a kind of PC thing of like, I could probably couldn't make short bus now with pressure from the left as opposed to the past, which was from the right. Because if people are having sex on film, someone's getting exploited. Someone would have a problem with that. 
Back then, only a couple of people did, who were people in my liberal point of view who had a problem with it. And I'm like, I would say examine your own fear about sex in your own life. You know, the actors in my piece were helping to write the stories. We worked for two and a half years they before knew we they shot it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, n never a negative, you know, word about it at all because we were very careful about everyone being a collaborator and feeling comfortable. You know, they said, well, you got to be in the orgy scene too if we do. And we're like, okay. So to me, we've lost some of that, that freedom. As a white gay man, am I allowed to have an Asian woman having an orgasm in front of me with, with a camera? I don't, maybe there's a violation there from someone. You know, it's like, that's what I mean by the kind of censorship from the left that annoys me. Obviously, there's, it's coming from grievance, real grievance. And, and certain, and a lot of that grievance has to be called out. But to actually censor and stop and kill people's careers because you don't agree with it, it to me is is very un-American and ultimately you're just using the the tactics of the people that you consider the oppressors. Have you felt like people have come close to doing that to you? No, I haven't seen it. It's definitely happened to friends of mine who've lost their careers because of one stray remark that was out of context. I've seen it. And it's disturbing to me because, you know, we shred our allies and we're rats in a cage. And it's because we're desperate to do something, to fix something when the powers that be seem immovable. Oh, because we have control over these we people. We have control over our friends and we, and we uh, criticize them and, and seek purity. And, and no one is pure, you know, casting the first stone, you know, your house is going to get smashed, glass houses. So... To me, I'm very much about calling attention to things that can be better. I really find self-policing, it's still policing. It still can be brutal. As opposed to awareness, informing yourself, listening, finding out what you could do better, engaging as opposed to attacking. You know, some people need to be removed from places of power for sure, because of abuse. But others, there's, there's complexity, there's nuance. We have to look at it. And we, I, I do believe in, in learning and rehabilitation because I've learned so much. What's an example of something? Well, like just that thing I was telling you when, you know, because I grew up in a military and Catholic environment, the worst thing you could be as a boy was like a girl. And I found myself, as many gay men do, in eroticizing masculinity because culture tells you that that's the hottest thing. The more butch, the closer to God in the, in the gay male world. And it's bullshit and it's self-hating, you know. And that's an, what I, I learned from doing drag is that was in me. You know, that was actually in me. So many, you know, the mask for mask thing is an internalized oppressor's view of how you're supposed to be. And it, it will kill you. And it's so difficult to talk about because no one wants to question like their desires. They're like, just, that's just what I desire. It's what it is me. Yes, but you also, sometimes what you desire is what you're taught to desire. And I did find that that changed. We have to question that and, and break through that. It's not just preference sometimes. I agree. It's I, culture's preference. I just think that's it's such a hard thing to do to even like begin that journey. Yeah, most people are sheep, including queer people. And, and maybe in some ways... Gay people, I think gay men specifically are more sheep-like than straight people. You know, if you're gay, you have to like that and you have to go there and it's Fire Island and, da, 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 and you, have to, you have to like RuPaul's show. And, and it's like, 
I don't like to be told what to do. And they were told what to do since they were kids, so why are they doing it again? For something as unique as Hedvig, which came from many sources and uses many forms, stand-up, punk rock, drag, Broadway, performance art, all together in one piece, all the things I love, and then making something new out of that. That was the goal. It wasn't to make a living. It wasn't to be famous. As soon as you're going for those things, you're changing what it is and you're making it more flat. It's not unique anymore as soon as you're thinking about other people's views. That sounds so ideal. I think I'm wondering if part of you wants everything you make to have this type of impact every time. Every impact is dependent on that person's view of it. There's no common impact. It's just whatever that one person gets from it. It has to interest me. It has to move me. It has to be something I haven't seen or heard. And that's not always, you know, possible. But if it has, if it has come through you fully, you can eat a strawberry. When it goes through you and becomes shit, it's yours. <laughs> You've changed it. Hopefully, when you swallow that strawberry and a diamond comes out the other end, that is the original thing. It's been cut by your inside. That's the wrong metaphor. But I'm saying when you tell the story your personal way, that is inherently original. And there's no way you cannot be original if you're being honest. It may not always be good, but it is original if it's coming through your mental alimentary canal. And to me, if Hedvig is the thing that people know me for the most, I will be blessed forever, you know. But I'm never weighed down by it. It just empowers me to do more new things. I think that is an amazing place to leave it at. Thank you for talking. Thank you for your work. And thank you for the strawberry metaphor. You're welcome. Strawberry shit. And that was John Cameron Mitchell. If you enjoyed this interview, please help us by telling just one person in your life. That's all we're asking. Just one person in your life who you think will like this episode. We've got a massive new series coming out next week that I've been working on for a couple of months. That debuts next week. I'll tell you more then. But if you know me, you know I love old people and I say that with immense fondness. So I don't want to give it all away, but that's coming next week. I'll tell you all the details then. And until then, please tell just one person. I promise that makes a huge difference. We are brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week with our big announcement. Bye.